chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So notice the connection between the gift of the Holy Spirit and sonship. It's because you are sons that God has given us the spirit of his son. There's such a thing as an experiential. Uh, I want to uh, focus on that word. There's such a thing as an experiential giving of the Holy Spirit. That God has given the spirit of his son and is crying there. This is not something secret or hidden or tucked away in a, in, out of sight and out of the, your consciousness. God has given us the spirit in a way that we are, are meant to be conscious of because you are already sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, which I take to mean that he, he leads us to cry. The spirit's work causes us to cry. In Romans 8, the parallel passage is we who cry. And I think Paul's really saying the same thing here, only in a slightly uh, short, shorter and sharper way. God sent the Spirit, and the Spirit is leading us to cry, Abba, Father. He's giving us an awareness of consciousness that we are the children of God. We are meant to know that we are the children of God. We're meant to feel that we are the children of God. And I want to spend... Uh, I would think at least these, these two sessions tonight on, on this uh, aspect of sonship. When you look at Christian doctrine, you find you, you keep on coming back at things from different angles. You look at a certain uh, area of teaching, and then you look at something else, and you come back at it again, because it, every area of doctrine connects with every other area of doctrine. So you keep on finding yourself, as it were, interweaving. There's really only one Christian doctrine. We often talk about the doctrines of the Christian faith, it actually is only one, is that the body of teaching, the faith, the whole counsel of God is normally uh, described in singular terms. Although Paul can say the things that you have been taught, but uh, generally terms describing the Christian faith are singular. The body of teaching, the whole counsel of God, there's just one message concerning Jesus, but it's got uh, hundreds of aspects to it. And when you're working through the faith, you keep on as you were coming back to things from a different angle. And so you would uh, look at the work of the Holy Spirit under, under many, many headings if you're trying to open up the whole Christian faith. But uh, you come back to it again when you're looking at adoption because one of the major aspects of our being, our being made the children of God and our being the children of God is because we are sons, it's because we are sons that God gives us the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon us and... Uh, leads us to cry, Abba, Father. We feel that we are the children of God. We feel our sonship. And this is a part of Scripture's teaching. Now, I want to try to uh, open it up. I, I'm looking around at you all tonight to uh, see where you're all coming from. We have, we have very varied uh, people here tonight from all sorts of different backgrounds, wild charismatics and... Uh, wild, not so wild, non-charismatic. We have every, every type. I had, to, I had to chuckle when we had a minute's silence tonight. I think in some churches we'd have had a minute's noise, but, uh, but uh, tonight we had a minute's silence. Some, some churches, everybody all praying together, we'd have a minute's noise, but uh, other places you have a minute's silence. I thought that was very uh, amusing in one aspect. 
And uh, we talk about a quiet time. I think most people, nowadays people don't have quiet times, they have noisy times. I remember a Kenyan friend of mine came here to Britain to a conference a bit like this. And uh, he, got, he got up at four or five in the morning as he normally does, not normally would, and he began to pray. But in typical Kenyan fashion, he was quite noisy. He was praying at the top of his voice and uh, calling upon God and shouting and dancing around the room. And uh, the whole conference was woken up by this guy praying and, and shouting to God, calling upon the name of the Lord. And they came to the, to the room and knocked on the door and said, well, you know, what's the matter? Are you all right? Are you sick? You know, are you ill? Are you, are you having an attack? And he said, no, I'm just praying. <laughs> he was having his quiet time, as, as uh, some people might say. Well, we come from all sorts of uh, backgrounds, and uh, some people are young Christians here. I'm sure there's some young people here. Some, some of us have been saved for a long time. So I'm uh, wondering how to uh, persuade you all of the things that I want to persuade you of tonight, all coming from different angles. But I start with this. There is something in the Scripture of an experience of the Holy Spirit where you, you, you cannot but be aware of it. The Holy Spirit coming into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, that, that can't be a secret thing or a hidden thing. You can't receive power without knowing about it. You can't have joy unspeakable and full of glory without knowing about it. There's such a thing as an experiential receiving of the Holy Spirit. Never mind too much about uh, how are you going to put it. I'll come back to that in a moment. But uh, I take it for granted that because we are sons, we are meant to know a level of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives that makes us aware and conscious that we are the children of God. And I can't help but remember, I think it's a bit amusing that I should be saying this here in Sonic, because I, I'm recalling a conversation that I had more than 40 years ago here at Sonic. I was, I was present at a conference here at this place in 1966. I was in my 20s. I was a young student at Cambridge. I had no money. I was poverty stricken as a student. And this, this conference was going on here. And um, it had Dr. Jim Packer the famous theologian speaking on the work of the Holy Spirit. And he also had Kenneth Kitchen, the Egyptologist at Liverpool University, one of the world's leading uh, Egyptologists. And these two, two guys, uh, Kenneth Kitchen, Kitchen and, and Jim Packer, were both here uh, speaking uh, on Egyptology and the Old Testament and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. And I was stony broke, and, uh, and uh, this is not a cheap place to come to. So I wrote, I wrote to uh, IVF, and begged for a free, free place. I said, no, I'm going to this conference. We've got no money. Please give me a free place. And they did. So I came, I begged my way into, into a conference here, and they gave me a free place here in, uh, in Swanwick. And Dr. Jim Packer was uh, speaking on the Holy Spirit. And I knew him a little bit. I studied philosophy under him in Bristol, so I, I knew him a bit. And uh, so I went to see him, and I, I had a few questions about what he was teaching. And I went to see him, and uh, I began to ask a question. And he, he holds very much that you, you get the Holy Spirit at conversion, that's all there is to it. There's absolutely nothing really beyond what you get at, the, at uh, conversion. But I went to ask him a question, and I began like this. I said, well, well Dr. Jim, this, this, uh, what, what you're saying tonight about the gift of the Spirit being an initial experience, something we get at conversion, an initial experience. And he interrupted me. He said, no, I didn't say that. And I said, oh, you know, I, I, thought, I thought I heard you say that the gift of the Spirit is an initial experience. I thought I heard you say that. He said to me, no, 
I didn't say the work of the Spirit is an initial experience. I said the work of the, the baptism of the Spirit is an initial event. Now, are you following that? I'm testing your uh, understanding tonight. I didn't say the gift of the Spirit is an initial experience. I said the, work, the gift of the Spirit is an initial event. He did not want me to use the word experience. It was an event. It t- takes place in the depth of your soul somewhere, but you're not meant to experience anything. He didn't want me to use that word. It, it's not a, I, you know, I didn't say that. I said it's an initial, not an initial experience. It's an event that takes place, but it's at the depth of your soul. You don't really experience anything. It's not conscious. And I sometimes think, I, uh, I, I didn't uh, put it to him on that night, but I sometimes think it's like uh, his view. His view, Dr. Packer. I'm expounding Dr. Packer tonight. His view... It's like crossing the equator in a plane at midnight. You ever cross the equator in the plane at midnight? And you're sitting there in your plane and the stewardess is giving you cups of tea and so on. And suddenly there's a bump and you say, what was that, what was that? And they say, no, it's all right, we just crossed the equator. Well, that's what doesn't happen, is it? You, you do not actually feel a thing when you cross the equator. You are there, an event takes place, there's a line that you cross, but you don't feel a thing. It is totally passive, it is totally non-conscious, you don't even know the point where you cross that line. It is totally subconscious, you're not in any way whatsoever aware of it, you just cross a line. An event takes place. Not in, any, in no way whatsoever is an experience. Doesn't make, you don't feel a bump. It doesn't wake you up. It's totally and absolutely passive. It's like, it's like the, the sun rising when you're asleep. It, it, it may rise, but you're asleep. You, you feel not a thing. And Dr. Packer's view and others, as well as Dr. Packer, um, hold that view as a gift of the spirit. And I had a similar com- conversation at Silver Springs Hotel in Nairobi with, with John Stott, the famous uh, pastor of uh, rector emeritus of uh, All Souls Langham Place. He was uh, preaching once. He, he preached for me in Nairobi Baptist Church. He came to a Baptist church once and I got him to preach in uh, the Baptist church. But I went to see him once and I, again, I had a conversation that went like this. I said to him, you, you talk about the experience of the Spirit, but you don't really believe in an experience of the Spirit. He said, what do you mean? What, you know, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you, you use the word experience, you say you, you, the experience of the Spirit, but you don't actually believe in an experience of the Spirit. You believe in something that's below the level of consciousness. You don't feel anything. So, so when you use the word experience, you don't really mean experience. And he said to me, yeah, you're right. I don't really mean experience in the way in which you are using the term. Now, this, this is... Um, this is the thing that we have to think about tonight. Is there such a thing as the experience of the Spirit? Or is it, or is it below the level of consciousness? You don't have any kind of awareness. You don't feel anything. You're not meant to feel anything. You take it by faith. that You have the Spirit because you believe in Jesus. And that's all there is to it. Well, I, here, you, here we are. I'm, I'm directing you to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because we are sons... God has poured the Spirit, sent the Spirit, and uh, 
In Romans chapter 5, it's poured out, shed abroad, the love of God by the Spirit. That's the Romans 5, 5 way of putting it. God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, and as a result of it, we are the ones. It's the Spirit doing it, but, but we're the ones doing the crying. As a result of it, we are crying, Abba, Father. We have an awareness that we are God's children. We are conscious of God's fatherhood, and it, and it touches our, our emotions, our feeling. We are crying. The, the word is, is a very strong word there. Kradzo, uh, it means to shout out or to, to have a kind of emotional uh, scream. The word sometimes even means scream. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, we translate it that way literally, but uh, it's clearly referring to some powerful event. We cry, we cry, Abba, Father. Are you telling me this is below the level of consciousness? That we are meant, not meant to know this in any conscious way? Well, there's the thing that uh, we're looking at tonight. I'm trying to... Uh, Come at it from, a, an, from an angle that maybe you've not heard before. I'm deliberately trying to, uh, to come at it from an angle you've not heard of before. But um, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, the very power that came upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that which began his ministry. Remember, he was the son of David. And, and what happened to David happened to him. Samuel came along in the life of David prayed for David, laid hands upon him, anointed, poured oil upon him, and the Spirit came down upon David and rested upon him from that day forward, says on Samuel chapter 16. And Jesus came as the son of David. What happened to, to, to David happened to Jesus. He came to that river Jordan. He was, he was praying. As he was praying, the Holy Spirit came down upon him, and, and he, he went out in the power of the Lord, says Luke chapter 4. And... Uh, Voice comes from heaven, you are my son. You knew that already, but there's a kind of doubling of his assurance that he's the son of God, and he goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how Jesus received the Holy Spirit. And now we receive the spirit of his son, the same spirit that came upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing happens to us. We are in Christ, and what happens to him happens to us. And we, we receive the spirit of his of adoption. It was the spirit of adoption for him. Because the voice came from heaven, you are my son. He gave him an assurance of sonship. At the same time as he received the Spirit, it was an assurance of sonship. Same thing happens to us. We receive the Spirit of his son. And we start using the very word that Jesus used, as I said uh, the other day, yesterday, yesterday was it? We actually start using the very word that Jesus used. Abba, Father, this consciousness, this awareness that we are the children of God. is intensified, it's magnified a thousand times. We know that we are the children of God, and we cry, Abba, Father. Can this be below the level of consciousness? Can, can this happen to you unconsciously? And if it can happen unconsciously, what's the good of it? What's the good of your father saying, well, you're my son, but I'm not going to tell you. I mean, what, what, would the, what would be the good of an unconscious declaration that we're God's children? What would be the good of a, a spirit of adoption that somehow we don't even know about? We, we sort of take it, but we don't uh, know about it. We just sort of take it that it's there. What's the good of that? How, how can that in any way assure us or, or make us cry or give us the, the words, Abba, Father, how can something unconscious do anything in our personal experience of God? Because you are sons, God has given us the spirit of his son. Well, I, I want us to think about it and dwell upon this for a few moments tonight. It'll take me more than one session. I think the best way for me to come at it is to try to introduce you to this and get you to think about it no matter where you're coming from you may come from some charismatic church where all sorts of things happen you believe in tongues and baptism of the spirit and all sorts of things like that 
You may come from a background where you've been taught to be a bit suspicious of these wild Pentecostal types and uh, it sort of threatens you, makes you feel a bit nervous to hear talk like this. You may come from either one of those. There are representatives of, of both sides, I think, here, even tonight. But uh, let me try to come at it from a, from a, a new way, a different way, perhaps, and uh, get us to think about it tonight. And maybe, maybe from different angles, we all have to do a bit of rethinking and uh, we all have to, as it were, come back to Scripture again. Every now and again you have to say, well, I think I've got this right, but let me just double-check. And you have to come back to Scripture again. And it will check it out and see whether what you believe really is what's there in the Scriptures. I think the best way for me to, to come at it is to do it somewhat historically. At the time of the Reformation, under Luther and Calvin and these great uh, reformers, there was a a return to the doctrine of justification by faith, there was a turn to the return to the teaching about atonement and Christ and the, the new birth and the power of the word of God and uh, our assurance and faith in, in the Lord. But um, the reformers' view of the Holy Spirit was, um, how can I put it, it wasn't terribly experiential. When, when people like Calvin would talk of the work of the Spirit, Cal, Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who develops the doctrine of the Holy Spirit more than anybody, expounds the scriptures concerning the Spirit more than many. And he's known among scholars, he's known, known as the theologian of the Spirit. But uh, Calvin's view of the Spirit was that the Spirit is doing a very secret work, a very hidden work. He's there in, in working in, the Holy Spirit is there working in the depths of your soul and he's enlightening you and illuminating you. You're coming to be given faith. It, God is working in you. You're being regenerated and born again by the work of the Spirit. But it's, it's all rather, rather secret. And Calvin actually used that phrase, the secret work of the Spirit. He, he would definitely uh, consciously put it that way. That there was a kind of hidden secret work of the Spirit as it were opening your eyes and you, you unless you are born again by the work of the Spirit. You can't see and you can't enter the kingdom of God. No one can call Jesus Lord except by the power of the Spirit and so on. And that's, that is the new birth. The Spirit is quickening and working in your life by the power of the Spirit and bringing you to faith. You're being born again. But it's all a bit non-experiential. Calvin didn't like, he wouldn't talk about any kind of feelings or any kind of consciousness or awareness or feeling anything. It's a secret, hidden, below the level of consciousness kind of work. That, that was Calvin's teaching. And uh, so that was the, the general teaching of the Reformation. And people who did have heavy emphasis upon, upon the, the voice of the Spirit and the Spirit working powerfully were the kind of lunatic fringe of the Reformation. The Anabaptists were often wild people, did, did weird things. They were the people constantly talking about a, a rather stronger view of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so reformers were, def, by definition, a bit suspicious of them. They're, they're the, the lunatic fringe, the crazy guys, doing all sorts of uh, strange things. So that did not encourage the reformers to, as it were, talk in any way about the experiences of the Spirit. Those who talked that way were, were crazy people, doing all sorts of weird things. The Anabaptist lunatic fringe. And so that didn't uh, in any way dent their teaching. They still held to this secret work of the Spirit. But as the next century came on, as people tried to take the Reformation further and further, and the Puritans came along, in, in various countries there were people who were trying to take the Reformation teaching further and trying to say, well, we've, we've begun in going back to the Word of God, but uh, there's more to be done. And it's not only the basic gospel, there's how to 
organize the life of the church, many other things. Let's, let's further, let us further purify the church. And they became known as Puritans. They were there in England. They were the Presbyterians in Scotland. They were there in Holland. A lot of uh, Puritans were in Holland. We don't know much about them because most of us can't read Dutch. But they were the Dutch Puritans as well as the English Puritans. And they crossed the Atlantic in 1620. And there were the American Puritans. These guys all over the place, Holland. Holland uh, and England and Scotland and America, especially wanting to further purify the uh, church, taking it further back to the New Testament, the Puritans. And they did see more of the Holy Spirit than, than Calvin did. They, they, they went, were willing to go further. And they did have teachings and doctrines concerning the outpouring and the baptism of the Spirit. And I could uh, quote you many men who, who said much more than Calvin ever said. Richard Sibbs, especially in Cambridge. Richard Sibbs in Cambridge. And, uh, and, and above all, the great Thomas Goodwin. He was a great expositor of the work of the Holy Spirit and so on. And so gradually in, in Protestantism, one generation from the Reformation, people began to see more in the Bible's teaching concerning the Holy Spirit than was seen among the 16th century early reformers. And people like Thomas Goodwin believed in baptisms and outpourings and floodings of the Holy Spirit. He testified to it, and they would talk very much about these, these uh, workings of the Holy Spirit that were conscious, that were experiential, that you knew about, both in conviction of sin, the Spirit coming down to convict you and make you feel how much you're a sinner, uh, and also to, to then baptize you and pour out a sense of the love of God. The love of God is shed abroad. The love of God is poured out in, not into, but in, in our hearts by the Spirit who has been given to us. He has been given to us, but now in our heart, he pours out the love of God. And this teaching was all in the teaching of Richard Sibbs and uh, Thomas Goodwin and John Preston, who was the chaplain of King Charles I and, and many men like that. And, and that carried on. There was this tradition that the Holy Spirit was, was far more powerful and far more able to empower us and give us a experiences and consciousness of God's power, even than the reformers had really taken seriously. And that continued, and then the Puritan movement decayed until there was a, a kind of fresh revival in the 1730s, the next century, the 1730s, under Whitfield initially, Jonathan Edwards in 1734, Whitfield in 1735, John Wesley in 1738, Daniel Rowlands in Wales, Howell Harris in a little village called Trevecca in South Wales. These men all discovered God, and God started moving in revival power all over, all over the world. And uh, something that I think is, is of special importance to us in the age in which we live, because here we are in 21st century Britain, which sometimes is so filthy and so vile and so disgusting. I remember being in Britain a couple of years ago when some MP said something like, I do my best thinking when I'm drunk. Remember that... Uh, MP demanding that pubs stay open till midnight a couple of years ago here in Britain and saying well, how, how much he enjoyed being drunk at midnight. And, and it was almost uh, here a sort of leading, leading statesman whose, whose life is, is vulgar and, and dirty and disgusting and the, the rise of, sort of sexuality and, its, and, and all the degradations in modern Britain. But this is not the first time it's happened. It was absolutely identical to that around about 1710, 1720. Go and read your history books of what happened before 
the uh, great evangelical awakening. Uh, people were saying it's only a matter of time before the Christian faith is dead and buried. It's now, it's now known to be fiction. People were sort of right that way. Now, now known, sad to say, sort of unhappy story, sorry and all that, pity is not true, but uh, now it's known to be all load of old fiction. It'll be buried quite soon. Uh, we, we, we must regard this as something that we abandon and just uh, start something new. That was the kind of language you, you heard in the 1720s, and you hear the same sort of language today. And people like Bishop Butler would write big, massive books defending the faith. The, the analogy of religion, the famous uh, book by Bishop Butler, trying to, as it were, bring people back to the faith. It didn't do a thing. The scholars with all of their mighty tomes didn't touch the situation at all, did nothing. And there were people hungry for God. The, the early, these, these early guys in, in the, the so-called Methodist movement in Oxford and Cambridge in the 17s or 30s and so on, all were seeking the Lord, but they, they hadn't found God. The, 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 that movement in Oxford is not people who had found God, it's a, it's a movement of people who were seeking God. And then suddenly God began to move all over the place, and men who did not know each other. They didn't even, a few of them did in Oxford, but generally speaking, they didn't know each other. Nobody ever heard of Jonathan Edwards in 1734. Nobody ever heard of, of Hal Harris and Daniel Rowlands in 1735. John Wesley comes under, John George Whitfield comes under such conviction of sin, it makes him ill, he, he's almost sick, and, and, and they have to send him down from Oxford to uh, go and sort of rest and recover. He's under such conviction of sin. And then they begin to seek God, and then God begins to pour out the Holy Spirit on all of them. And Wesley, he, he, he was saved back in the 1720s, but he didn't have any kind of power, goes to, goes to America to try and be a missionary, but totally fails, has no assurance of salvation, sees these Moravian uh, missionaries on the boat as he's crossing, and when there's a storm, he's afraid to die, and, but the missionaries are not. And he goes to them and says, how can't you carry on singing in the middle of a storm? Weren't you afraid to die? And they say, no, no, neither we nor our wives nor our children are afraid to die. And he's stunned that these people who are not afraid to die in the middle of a storm in, in, a 19, in the 18th century boat in the middle of the Atlantic, which is not a, risk, not a very uh, good way of traveling. And uh, it leads him to get hungry and he starts listening and slowly, 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 slowly he comes to believe that faith in Jesus is enough. And, he's, and he comes to believe in justification by faith. He starts preaching it. And people begin to be saved under his preaching. But he still doesn't have very much power. Then on one famous occasion, very famous in the history of Methodism, May the 24th, 1738, he goes into some little place in Fetter Lane. You can still go to Fetter Lane in Fle off Fleet Street. It's still there today. This little little back alley, which is still there, called Fetter Lane, some little meeting place. And someone's reading Luther, reading Luther's comments on Romans. And as he just listens to this, uh, someone preaching on, on Luther, he says, I felt, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I knew that he'd saved me, even from sin and of death. And it transforms his life. He knows that he's, he's, he's forgiven. And the Spirit is poured out of him. And it's that which makes Wesley the, the mighty man he was. And at that point, he's full of power and begins to be the famous evangelist he, he always was. It happened to, West, to, to Whitfield three years earlier. But one after another, Whitfield, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, Daniel Rowland, they didn't even know each other very much. But all over the world, there's revival in, in America under Edwards. None of the, very few of these men know each other. Wesley and Whitfield did, but, and I suppose Charles Whitfield knew his brother. But uh, very, few, very few people really know each other. 
And then they hear about each other. They hear that what's going on in London is going on in Wales. And George Whitfield meets Daniel Rowlands for the first time. The first thing he ever asks him is, Mr. Rowlands, do you know that your sins are forgiven? And Rowlands replies, yes, I've known it for some years. What they all have in common, what's, what, the, what is everywhere, they all have the same thing in common. They have this outpouring of the Spirit, and they know that they're full of power. They know that their sins are forgiven. And it transforms everywhere they go. And within a few years, the whole of Britain is different. It transforms society. The whole, the whole nation immediately is changed and all, on all the gin drinking and the prof the profligacy and the filth and the degradation, it slowly begins to be swept away. And within 20, 30 years, the nation begins to become not famous for its sin, but famous for its morality. And it's uprightness. They change the entire nation from, from, from abandoning any hope that the Christian gospel was going to survive until the day when suddenly the, British, the different aspects of the British Isles becomes famous for its... Uh, Integrity in the 1790s, the missionary movement begins. Carey goes to India and it starts spreading this gospel all over the world. It all begins with this baptism of power in the 1730s and thereabouts. And so it goes on that way. From this point on, it's thoroughly established in the Protestants through the Puritans, through the revival, through Wesley and Whitfield. They have different views about grace, they have different views about eternal security, they have different views about about predestination, but there's one thing that they all have in common, although they, they, they disagree over many, many things, there's one thing that they all agree with, this outpouring of the Spirit that transforms lives, this experiential, the witness of the Spirit was the term they like to use so much, and they all have that in common. They, later on they divide and they fight each other and go different ways, but they all have this one thing in common, before, long before they're arguing about predestination, they all have one thing in common, they know these outpourings and these baptisms of the Spirit. And, the, and they, they go on this way, it goes on, for, it goes on for a century. They believe in these outpourings and the enabling and empowerings of the Holy Spirit. They believe in Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God pours out, God baptizes you, God floods your heart with the Spirit of his Son. leads you to cry, Abba, Father. They all believe that, every single one of them. And revivals go on and on and on and on, right the way through. The whole, the whole of the 18th century is, is, a, is a story of revivals. I quoted to you a bit earlier, some, somewhat humorously, but uh, I, I was serious in a sense. I quoted to you earlier on William Williams. He was one of the great, great hymn writers. Many, many hundreds of songs came out of this movement. When people are touched with the Spirit, they start singing. And look at your history books. Look at your hymn books. All the great songs come from days of revival. You see, before you can write a great song, you have to have, you have, to have a great experience. You can't write a great hymn about morality. You can't write a great hymn about just being a good politician. You need something big. John Wesley was, Charles Wesley was walking down the street one day and passed Peter Buller on the streets of Oxford. One of them said to the other, isn't it great to praise the Lord? The other one said, yeah, this little tongue of mine is not good enough. We could do with a thousand. And it gave Wesley an idea. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. You need a big theme to write big poetry. You need something majestic before you can produce a, a majestic song. 
And these things burst out of people. And, and the hundreds and hundreds of, of hymns and songs came out, especially Charles Williams, and especially William Williams, although we, we don't know about him because they're all in Welsh. Only two of them ever got translated. And one of them you surely know, the other one you might not do. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I'm sure many of you know that great song by William Williams. But he wrote another one. O'er the gloomy hills of darkness, look, my soul, be still and gaze. All the promises do travail with a marvelous day of grace. They all believe in these outpourings. The, the, the situation can be very dark and gloomy. It's like, it's like the dark clouds appearing over, over the, the black hills in South Wales or the gloomy hills of darkness. But there, over the hills, you can see the sun beginning to shine. There's a kind of a tinge of light. Or the gloomy hills of darkness. Look, my soul, be still and gaze. All the promises are working. They're working, bringing mighty outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And William Williams would write a, so- a new song and it would lead to revival all over Wales. Wales became, right as it, as it continued right up to 1904, Wales became a land of revivals. That's where Welsh singing, where do you think Welsh singing comes from? It comes from these amazing revivals, these outpourings. They learned to sing. And the Welsh have been singing ever since. Whether they're saved or whether they're not. It all comes from these outpourings of the Holy Spirit, these baptisms, these floods of the Holy Spirit. Well, that went on and people, they lived that, all Christians lived that way. Up until round about the 1820s. And then that kind of faith in the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking of the English-speaking world, but the same thing was happening in other parts. It's happening over Holland. It's happening in Afrikaans-speaking bits of uh, South Africa and so on. It's happening all over, all over the world that was in any, any, any way touched by the English scene, mainly in English, but not, not exclusively, and in Wales as well. And, uh, but it went on until about 1828 or thereabouts. Then, around about 1828, something happened which began to, as it were, dampen this kind of uh, looking for the power and these outpourings of the Spirit. And it was, it was the rise of what, what is known as the Irvingite movement, a man by the name of Edward Irving. And he became, how can I put it, he became a kind of Pentecostal. And I have to say that he was quite extremist. He held very extreme... Uh, views of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues and healings, although he never experienced any of those things himself. He, did, he didn't in any way speak in tongues ever, and he didn't know any, anything of the power of healing, but he believed in those things, and he began to encourage them in his church. And the church in, in London, uh, in I think it's called Regent Square, it's, it's somewhere near where the London University is, I think, I think the church is still there. The church in, in London began to be a kind of center of wildness and extremism, and people were doing all sorts of uh, lunatic things, and you went into that place, and you thought they were just crazy, and uh, it brought discredit upon any kind of talk of the experience of the Spirit. And people began to be fearing the talk about the experience of the Spirit, because the one people doing all that sort of talking were the Irvingites, and they wanted apostles, and they did all sorts of things, some of which uh, we, we've revived in the 21st century. But uh, whatever you think about them, they certainly were very... Um, discouraging in, in the 1820s. And, they, and it led, they had prophetic conferences at Albury Manor. You can go to, to uh, Albury Manor. It's still there in Surrey in, in England, not far from, about two or three miles outside Dorking, Albury Manor is still there. They would hold these prophetic conferences. And then there was a lady in Northern Ireland in a place called Powers Course. They would hold these prophetic conferences at Powers Course in the, in the 1830s. And all sorts of things came out. 
J.N. Darby's teaching, the teaching about the rapture, came in at that time. And, and uh, there's reason to think that uh, the idea of a secret rapture, and I'm stressing the word secret, the idea of a secret rapture, where Christians suddenly disappear, you know where they are, and they've been raptured, and go up in heaven, and it's, and it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not a public thing, it's not, it's not every eye shall see him, or coming with the blast of a trumpet, it's a secret thing. Suddenly, God, certain people just disappear from nowhere. You've seen on the back of, of cars, you know, if this car has no driver, well, I'm, I've been raptured, good luck to you, I don't know what's going to happen next. You've seen those sort of notices on the backs of cars, I'm sure. It all comes from the 1830s. And people like B.W. Newton would say that it came in a prophecy. Somebody stood up in a prophecy and said, well, God has told me that there's going to be a sort of rapture that's not the second coming. And sort of rapture teaching and, and uh, some of you might know of these novels that are written about, about raptures where people disappear and you're not quite sure where they all are. It all goes back to the 1830s. And it was all full of, and uh, it, all these things were all tied up together. And it's the explanation of many, many things and many aspects of modern life which really go back to the 18, from 1820 to 28 the next following years. The reason why the Christian brethren have always been so anti-charismatic you get people who come from, from more egg sort of backgrounds and uh, people who have got sort of brethren backgrounds and they hate anything, any talk about uh, the outpouring of it. You're looking guilty as well. Oh, you, come, you come from that background as well? Yeah, okay. I could, I could see by the blush on your face. These people, these people who sort of hate anything charismatic, well, it goes all the way back to days when, when they sort of divided and Irving would go one way and the other, the other guys would be prophetic lunatics and one guy would be charismatic lunatics and all hate each other and, and, and so on. And, and they, the brethren grew up with this fear of anything which in any way vaguely resembled Irvingism. They grew up, this is in their history. And so any sort of guy that talks about the, the gift of tongues or anything charismatic, they're, they're scared of it. It's of the devil. It, 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 that's Irvingism. And that's where they get this kind of hostility. Uh, it's, it's, it's not so much so bad nowadays, but uh, in the 1960s and 70s, the most uh, hostile people to anything charismatic would be the brethren. Not only in... in um, in England, but in, in Europe, because J.N. Darby uh, would go to Europe a lot, and he, God always blessed him there. He built many churches there, and so on. And he crossed the Atlantic, and he, he managed to persuade a man called C.I. Schofield, Cyrus Schofield, and he wrote a, a big fat Bible called the Schofield Bible. You know all about the Schofield Bible? All, all began to pour into the footnotes of the Schofield Bible. And some people seem to think that Paul wrote the footnotes as well as the Bible. And, uh, and so on. The footnotes inspires everything else. And uh, it all brought a kind of discredit upon anything uh, charismatic. And slowly, an em any kind of emphasis upon the Holy Spirit began to subside, mainly as a sort of reaction to Irvingism, which was so extreme, and so on. And then, ag then again, in around about the year 1880, uh, getting a little bit nearer to our own, uh, getting slowly nearer to our own times. Around about the 1880, a new phrase came into the Christian church, which had never been heard of before. People began to use the phrase, taking it by faith. You, you, you would take something by faith, which means you don't feel a thing, you don't have any kind of consciousness or awareness, you have no experience of God whatsoever, but you just uh, take it by faith, that you've got it. You take it by faith that you've got the Spirit. You take it by faith, and so on. And uh, <coughs> the person who used to complain about this a lot was, um, what's his name? 
A.W. Tozer. You'll find A.W. Tozer always complaining about these people who are taking things by faith. They're taking so much by faith, they're not leaving anything for us to experience at all, Tozer will say. All you people taking all these things by faith, but but, uh, you've taken so much, there's nothing left. Lloyd-Jones used to say, if you've got it, where is it? You know, you've taken it by faith. You've got it by faith. You've taken it by faith. Lloyd-Jones used to say, if you've got it, where is it? You know, power, full of glory, joy unspeakable. You've got it. You've taken it by faith. Where is it then? It was Lloyd-Jones' way of uh, putting that little uh, approach to things, putting it down a bit. And that almost became normative evangelicalism. Evangelicals became, that became their standard sort of approach to things. That we, we mustn't talk about anything experiential. Uh, we mustn't go back to Irvingism. We take it by faith that the Spirit has got to us. Packer said, Packer said, I did not say an initial experience. You see, he's not lacking that word experience. I didn't say initial event, uh, experience. I said an initial event. You take it by faith. It, it happened, but it's not experience. You take it by faith. You've got this event that's, that's taken place in your soul. Well, things go, went on that way. And uh, evangelicalism, I would say, began to decline. And massive things happened that seemed to be greatly powerful and blessed, but they didn't really change the situation. In 1954, Billy Graham came to the Haringey, the big famous Haringey Crusades of the 1950s, and the great Wembley Crusades of, of 1956. And uh, those things were powerful, but they, they didn't really have much teaching about the Holy Spirit. In fact, people would be proud they would even boast that in the Billy Graham Crusades there would be no display of emotion. People would say, no, it's not emotionism. Billy Graham would talk coolly and calmly. I want you to get up out of your seats. And, and they would be proud that there was no display of emotion. People would say, well, no emotion, not emotionalism. They'd even be boasting that there would be no emotion. And, and Billy Graham at one point actually dropped the singing of... of uh, just as I am without one plea, drop that because it was a bit too sort of uh, emotional. It made you sort of cry a bit. It brought some tears in your eyes as you were coming, just as you were. He actually dropped that singing that song in the crusade, lest it should have any kind of feeling it or emotion, lest, it, lest anybody should accuse him of emotionalism. And uh, evangelicalism became cold and hard and dry. But there were people all over the place praying for revival. And... Uh, a very big year, a turning point in the history of the British church took place in 1959 because 1959 was the, the 100th anniversary of the 1859 revival, the last great outpouring of the spirit that had ever been in history that, that affected whole continents and nations, the last multinational outpouring of the spirit that had ever been was in, 18, was in 1859. It began in 1857 in New York, Across the Atlantic, touched Ulster, they call it the Ulster Revival in Northern Ireland. In Britain, didn't touch Britain very much, except in Charles Spurgeon's congregation. The year 1859, Spurgeon called it Revival Year. And he had a congregation of 6,000. There were 6,000 seats in, in Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. Of those days, it's been burnt down twice, and each time it got smaller. But uh, 6,000 6, seats in the original chapel. And he would look out, he would say... Every single seat in this auditorium has had someone saved while sitting on it this year. And it held, it had 6,000 seats. Every seat, Spurgeon would say, is a way of showing how many people were being saved. Every seat had someone saved while sitting on it. 
this year. And you can still go and buy Revival Year Sermons. It's still in print. You can go and buy it. You can try it on Amazon.com you'll find it. The Year of uh, Revivals. And then it went on into Sweden. It touched Sweden. It swept everywhere. It didn't seem to affect England very much but, uh, as a whole, apart from Spurgeon's congregation. And all over the place there was this great outpouring of the Spirit. It totally changed American history. In America, they call it the second great evangelical awakening. And what makes America, America today, the reason why you can go to America and go to churches that are 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, you can't do that in Britain. Why, why is, it that, that, is that in America but not in Britain? Because the revival touched America, did not touch Britain very, very largely. And, it, and American British history diverged from that point on. America had a, a Christian influence. From that point, the numbers, the vast numbers of Christian people who claimed to be Christians in that time, goes back to 1859 and so on. But in 1959, a century had gone by, and that kind of blessing had almost disappeared. And all over the place, people began to pray, just because it was the, hundredth cent- the centenary, people began to pray. And various uh, movements came into being, and they all had things like this, the such and such revival fellowship. There was an Anglican revival fellowship. There was a Baptist revival fellowship. There was a Methodist revival fellowship. All over, all over the con- country, praying groups came into being that would call themselves such and such revival fellowship. I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. And all these old guys, I had, I had all these old guys around me, uh, they used to take me to these prayer meetings. I can remember being, as a teenager, in St. Paul's Portman Square in London, where, where ministers and Anglican pastors and all sorts of people, just clergy, not, not, uh, not lay people, generally speaking, these, these old grey-beard pastors were there, and they would pray all night. They would start at 9 o'clock, and they would pray all night. I used to do the same thing myself. I used to hold prayer meetings for teenagers, and we would begin at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. We'd pray all night, and we'd go to... I was an Anglican in those days. We'd go to 8 o'clock communion on Sunday morning. People all over the country were pleading and praying, revival fellowships and all-night prayer meetings, pleading that God would do again what he did 100 years before. Martin Lloyd-Joseph Westminster Chapel interrupted his eight-year series on Ephesians and for 26 weeks preached on revival in the middle of his Ephesians series. He interrupted the series in order to preach for six months or so upon revival. You can buy those sermons as well. They're still in print. And you can hear them on tape. You can go and buy them on on cassette tape from the Lloyd-Jones Recording Trust. So people everywhere were praying that God would move again and that we would experience outpourings and baptisms and experiences of the Holy Spirit. Then in 1962, three years later, the charismatic movement began. And people began to hear stories of of pastors who were talking in tongues and uh, meetings that were noisy began among Lutherans in America and it got a good press in England the reason why it got a good press is there was a very staid Anglican I'm going to stop in a moment in fact my watch tells me I've got 28 seconds left but uh, the reason why it had such a good press in in, in Britain is there there was an Anglican journal called The Churchman still exists called The Churchman it had a very uh, orthodox and well-known and highly respected editor a man by the name of P.E. Hughes. He was uh, very widely respected. And P.E. Hughes heard about these movements of the Spirit, and he began to support it. And he wrote an editorial. I remember reading it as a 20-year-old 20, 20, t- little boy. He began to support this, these movements of the Spirit. And people said, if P.E. Hughes is, is supporting it, 
it must be all right. He was, he was a pillar of all of them. If he, if he uh, sort of confirmed this, people said, well, if, if you says it's all right, it must be real. He was a personal friend of Lloyd-Jones. They were very close to each other. They were very good friends. And then Michael Harper, the curate of All Souls, Langham Place, another, another pillar of orthodoxy. Again, it was touched by the Spirit, and all sorts of things happened. And there were three men in Britain who were powerfully touched. Can I remember their names? David Watson, Michael Harper, and John Collins, who's not quite so well known. Three men were powerfully transformed. They, they didn't even know what had happened to him. And I was at Cambridge. Derek, uh, David Watson got into trouble and was thrown out of his church in Cambridge and thrown out of Tyndale, Tyndale House, the research centre. The next year, I was a student in Tyndale House Research Centre. And everywhere, I heard stories of David Watson. Uh, you know, how were you saved? Oh, I was, I was saved under David Watson. You know, what's happened to you? You're such a man of power. Well, you know, David Watson. Every, everywhere you went, you, you'd, you'd meet David Watson's converts. He was clearly, obviously, a man of great power. And uh, everybody knew about him. Those three men didn't even know what, what had happened to them. And they only knew one man in Britain who maybe could help them. They went to see Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was 62 years old himself, but he had this kind of name for believing in the Holy Spirit. So they went to uh, see him. And they told him their story, how they had these experiences. Experience. didn't even know what they were, what name to call them. Lloyd-Jones listened to them for an hour or so as they all shared their story. And then when it was over, he said, Gentlemen, you have been baptized with the Holy Ghost and with power. That was his comment after listening to them. And then he began to tell his own story, something that Lloyd-Jones scarcely ever did. He was a very secretive, uh, self-effacing man. You very rarely got Lloyd-Jones tell you his own story. And he told the story of how in 1949, when there was a Thatcher revival in the Hebrides, in northern Scotland, and he was so sort of interested in this moving of the Spirit in Hebrides, as he was, as it were, praying that it would, it would uh, spread throughout the whole of nation, he too was baptized with, a, with a, a new power. And everybody who ever hears Dr. Lloyd, knows Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I, I was too young, but people who, who heard the whole life of Lloyd-Jones will say the most powerful year in his ministry was 1949. He, he had a new touch of power. It transformed him. He never told anybody that, very, that story very much, but he told David Watson and a few others, and, and so on. And so the charismatic movement went on. But it had this kind of effect, and I'm about to stop now, but uh, it had this kind of, of effect that it divided the Christian world into two. You either liked it or you didn't. You either thought this was the greatest thing you've ever heard of in your life and you, you went for it, or you thought, well, these people with their tongues and their visions and their dreams and all these sort of crazy things they do, this, this can't be of God, and you resisted it. You, 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 you sat on one side of the fence, which was a pity, because I will try to show you in the next session, there are more than two options. You don't have to just be for or against. There's far more options than two, as, as I will try to show you. But in the 1960s, you were either for or against. If you were a new charismatic, the term charismatic came along. If you were charismatic, you sort of were persecuted. Except the charismatic movement grew and grew and grew and grew. And finally, there were so many charismatics that you persecuted the others. It, 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 the power was in the charismatics, and they began to persecute. And uh, the, the Christian world divided into two. We were in Zambia, many of us, some of us here were in Zambia at that time. And there was one mission there, the AEF, which is a mission in 
Zambia. They took a kind of negative line. They threw out all of the missionaries who were, who were going this way. And I can remember one, on one occasion in Zambia, the head of the AEF coming to see me. And he said, we've just lost all of our best people, all, all of our soul winners, all of our preachers. They, they speak in tongues. The mission's thrown them all out. We've just lost all of our best people, he said. And uh, all over the world, people sort of uh, took a stand. There were people who sat on the fence, and they were all right. God, God has sympathy with us when we're sitting in our fence for, for a little while. Others were touched with power, but sometimes they went to wild extremes. The Bible got lost somewhere. We weren't reading the Bible very much. We were just uh, enjoying the Holy Spirit. The Bible got sort of lost down the, uh, down the alleyway somewhere. Those who really became hostile to it, to, to the working of God, seemed to die. If you were sort of anti-charismatic, if you were hostile to the working of the Spirit, those people, they seemed to just wither away and die. It was as if God had sympathy for you if you were just making up your mind. But if you'd made up your mind negatively, it's as though the Spirit passed you by and such mission, missions died all over the place. Except those who changed sides. In certain places, uh, some movement would be highly hostile, but then a bit down the road, they would change their mind. They find all, everybody everywhere who's really being used by God is in this kind of charismatic movement, and they would change sides. Campus Crusade, which was known for rejecting the baptism of the Spirit, it changed sides in France. And in France, it became a part of the charismatic movement. They began to soar and take off. Some, some, some people were hostile to begin with, and they changed sides. When they changed sides, God began to bless them. So that's where we are. And the question is, where should we be today? And that's where we'll come back to in the next session. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will give us some new guidance and a new hunger for the work of the Holy Spirit. May we understand your scriptures. May we be hungry and thirsty for outpourings and blessings, this greatest aspect of sonship, because we are sons. God has given us the spirit of his Son, in whom we cry, Abba, Father. I pray that we may be open to the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'll deliver us from wildness, you'll deliver us from extremism, you'll deliver us from quarrels and disunity, that you'll put in all of our lives a hunger for the real thing, not, not anything that's wild or crazy or extremist or over the top, but that which is real, that which is authentic, that which is truly receiving power, that which is a spirit of sonship in whom we cry, Abba, Father, please work in our hearts and teach us. And I pray that we might, might make progress tonight, wherever we're coming from, whatever our background is, whatever our prejudices, my prejudice, other people's prejudices, May we all move forward tonight and uh, come to believe in the power and the anointing and the enabling and the outpouring of your mighty Holy Spirit. Grant it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.